All right. Yep, panel. Uh, so, Corey Gilchrist and Andrew McCauley, people who know much more about this than I do, have worked with the dying. Corey's a, a chaplain over at St. Joseph's Hospital. Andrea is a palliative care case worker at social worker at Banner UMC. And um, yes, let me just grab my papers. Thanks. So they have some practical things. Corey, did you want to go over? I know you got some life care pl planning packets. Like, did you want to, why don't you start with that? And this is actually a helpful practical thing. Yes, I do have papers. Uh, I know not everybody loves papers, but uh, as Kevin said, I, I work as a hospital chaplain. And for many of the patients that I see, they, uh, we don't know what their wishes are in terms of their medical treatment. And it can be very frustrating to a medical team to not fully understand whether the, the medical treatment that they want is meeting the medical treatment that they're getting. So we'll often get uh, very sick people coming in with very aggressive treatment, only to find out later that they never wanted that and that we're kind of beyond the point of return. Um, for instance, if a, a, a person has a stroke and they come into the emergency department and they're given CPR and uh, evaluated for a stroke, put on a ventilator, we don't know if they want that. And if we find out later that they didn't want that, it's very difficult to just take all of that intervention away. So the Attorney General's office offers this packet, a life care planning packet, where you can list out what kind of medical treatment that you want or don't want. Now, there are, you can ask David or probably anybody this, there's, there are a million different treatments that you could get at a hospital or at your doctor's office. Um, and so it's impossible to identify all, all of those preferences. So this packet also helps you identify someone that can help you make those medical decisions if you are unable to communicate, whether it's your spouse or your friend or your child or your neighbor, and all you need is a witness to sign them. I would be delighted if you allowed me to be your witness, as long as I'm not in your will which that's totally fine if I'm not. Please don't put me in my will if it means letting me be your witness to this form uh, so that you can say, this is the person I want to help me make my medical decisions. I have a hundred of these packets down in that little blue bag. Um, if today you want to think about it and have it, have it signed by somebody like me, I, that would please me very much because professionally it can be very frustrating to have people have their their wishes violated. Um, in addition, uh, this is more for end-of-life care. This last page is called a DNR, do not resuscitate. In the event of a, a, a catastrophe like a cardiac arrest or a respiratory failure, um, if you don't want to be resuscitated and you have one of these, then you won't have your ribs broken. You won't have a tube shoved down your throat. You won't have any uh, invasive medical procedures done to you. You can uh, make copies of this, give one to your primary care doc, put one on your fridge if you're serious about it so that a fire department doesn't come knock down your door and uh, and try to find this. Do you want me to pass them out and people can take them if they want? Or 
I, you know, ideally, I would love for everybody to take one. Honestly, you don't I know, have to use it. You don't have to. You sign don't it have today, to use it. You don't have to sign it today. But really, it would be it would be really really great if at least you have the conversation. Because if you don't have paperwork and you're brought into the hospital, then and you're incapacitated, you can't speak. Then we would look for family. We would say, you know, uh, who, who knows you, Keith? Do you know this person? Do you know this person? And has he ever said, "I don't want to be resuscitated"? And if you're a, a friend or a neighbor or a cousin, then you can have some authority to help people have their medical wishes be known. Um, there's also a really good website with videos and things like that and also a very simple document there that you all, if this is overwhelming or this isn't clear enough, um, prepare for your care. It's um, a great website, great document. It's written on a fourth grade re reading level and it really goes through what is an acceptable quality of life for me. And there's options and places to write things in and also a living will. I mean, it, it constitutes a living will, but also a medical power of attorney as a part of that document. And it has nice coloring and pictures and all kinds of friendly ways to look at it so that people will want to do this when it's very hard. Um, prepare for your care. So I really encourage each one of you to go to the website. You can make it up on the website, I believe, and then print it out and have it signed. Um, your witness, by the way, cannot be related to you by marriage, adoption, blood in any way, or be in your will anywhere. So somebody else that doesn't constitute one of those levels, I'm willing to witness as well, or find somebody else here that's not any of those categories, and so you can always have these things. The important thing after you create a document is to get it to your doctor, to get it to your hospital to maybe carry it on you like the medical power of attorney at least. Talk to your medical power of attorney so they know what you're saying about these different things, um, what you want, what you don't want, what you want your death to look like, et cetera. Oh, and there's a nice little um, in case of emergency kind of thing um, in the packet that he passed out. So, um, yeah. Sue. Uh, okay, so you mentioned that uh, people who are dying sometimes want one thing, and some, like sometimes they want people there, sometimes they don't. Yeah. Sometimes they're unable to communicate what they want. What do you? What would you recommend for family members? How to engage with somebody who is who appears to be in a dying process? Who maybe you don't have a whole um, staff of hospice workers around to to give you a feel for what to do. Well, I, I think each, um, each place that they might be hopefully does have a chaplain if you're at a place or a social worker or any of those places. If the person's at home, you, when you're at the end stages, you can't be home alone. So there has to be somebody. Um, do you mean like the practical? How do you get people there? How do you pay for people? What, what is your question? Okay. So I think a lot of times, um, you know, people, family members, when the patient's not able to talk and they're, they're not responsive anymore, they think, well, they can't hear me. And the belief is really that they probably can hear you. They can probably hear you say, Mom, I'm sorry for how I've hurt you. I forgive you. I love you. All of these things that 
you need to say, even if they can't hear you, let's say just for instance, they can't hear you, you're still doing that because there's a chance and two, this is your chance and you have limited time to do that. So it's the time to tell them all these things that you've thought in your head that you've wanted to say to them, unless it's to yell at them, which I would not recommend at the end of life, right, when they're dying, because you're not going to feel good about that after. Um, but it's your chance to say those things and make it a positive experience around them, peaceful, whether it's singing, whether it's laughter. I mean, every family is a little different in their culture of their family and what's important then. So I get a lot of requests for families, uh, from families for me to come in and pray for the dying. And I always respond with the same question, and that's, would they be okay with me praying for them? And some of them say, well, we're Catholic, but they're Jewish. And I said, well, you know, I, I really want to keep this, the patient's best interests at heart. So for folks that really insist upon having ritual or conversation when the patient cannot participate, I'll try to invite their character to join the conversation. So I'll try to facilitate a conversation by saying, what do you think grandma would say to you? At this point, because some people will say, you know, I really have beef with grandma and I need to let her have it. And I'll say, well, that, you know, that may be a good way to externalize some of your feelings, but it's not really fair to grandma because she can't respond to you. So how can we get those feelings out and get grandma's feelings out as well? So I, I always consider boundaries for the patient, but I think there is kind of a general rule of thumb, holding hands, soothing touch, calm environment. And just really, really fast with um, dying alone, I, I believe that some people have to be alone in order to die. We'll get patients who are terminally ill and the breathing tube is disconnected and we expect them to die in a minute or two and they, and they just hold on for days and the family is just exhausted and they don't want to get any bathroom or coffee breaks because they don't want to be there at that moment when dad finally passes on. And I say, you know what, you guys, you have to go get coffee. You have to go to the bathroom. You have to take a walk. You have to go home and sleep, take a shower because maybe dad needs to be alone to work something out mm. with his God or with the universe or whatever it is. But a lot of the visitors, they, they want to provide for the dying, but it's actually them trying to provide for themselves. So trying to determine which is which I think is really critical. Yeah, I'll just say real quick, um, it's a great question, Sue, and it's one that really doesn't have an, a great answer. I think these are good answers, but uh, you're going you're gonna to make mistakes. Or you're going to maybe do the wrong thing for them, and, and, and that's okay. I think the important thing is that you enter in and... Um, and that you're present with that person. And, and there's going to be some people in the family who think we should do this and some that think we should do that. And the patient may have wanted something entirely differently. You know what? You didn't do, do it perfectly, but you were present in it. Yeah, Rod. One of the most beautiful gifts that um, our mother gave me and gave us, um, years before she slipped slowly into dementia, um, was not just a medical power of attorney, but an actual power of attorney that covered everything. Mm. So I was able to sell her house. I was able to do all kinds of things for her when she could not do that. That was a 
that was an amazing gift to give us as children. And I think just a gift, like if you have people, it requires a great, great deal of trust because you, you know, uh, I could have sold all her stuff and put her on the street. But those are the kinds of, that's a beautiful gift. Uh, it sounds like we can take one or two more questions if anyone has. Well, I have a really quick response okay, to yep. that, which is the best gift that you can give to the dying is to give it to them when they're still living. Hmm. So if you don't, you can't get on mom's deed on her house because she can't sign for it. What a big disservice to have waited that long. Um, some of you know what I do for a living, but I work as a mentor for disabled people. And my last resident passed away right before Christmas. And as I was caring for her, I was noticing things that just kind of gave me a sign that she was getting ready to pass. So is this normal that people will pick up on that? Or was it just me <laughs> thinking, hey, maybe something's wrong here because I was relatively new to the situation? I think there's always signs coming that you can see a decline as things get closer and the decline happens over weeks, then you know it's coming, death is coming within weeks or so. Hmm. And as it gets closer to decline in days, then you can see that death is probably coming in days. But with all that said, family is often not wanting to see the signs. Um, we have meetings all the time, hmm. goals of care with families to try to decide, you know, with patients and family, what do they want, what do they not want? Are we going for more chemo? Are we not? And when you finally start talking to them, you hear, wow, there were these signs that they just weren't putting together because they just couldn't mentally handle that yet. Um, one thing, sorry, I want to go back to Sue real quick. There's a study that says that the dying, the thing that they're not given, that they wish they were more, is touch. So people are afraid sometimes to hold the hands and those kind of things, and they need more of that often. Not everybody, but there are studies that say that. And a really quick response to Corey is, um, I don't know if there's empirical, ev empirical evidence about feelings or senses that someone is dying, but if you have a sense that someone might be dying, I think that those senses should be trusted, mm -hmm. and they should inform how you love and care about another person. Mike? If you have a loved one um, that you know is going through a process um, and eventually in the not-too-distant future they will enter into a dying process uh, and you want to be present and, you know, be there to help them through the process, but they also seem to have a desire to keep you out of that process, how do you gently approach that? I think going back to what I said is, you know, you, uh, the dying process is such a sacred and personal thing that it deserves respect. And, um, you know, my, my bottom line at the end of the day is you have to do what's in the best interest of the patient. And sometimes that means to take a step away. Yeah. Even if it's your mom. Well, on that note, um, okay, no, that's okay, Mike. It's real. Um, 
first off, give these guys a hand. And you guys, please stay up here. Uh, if you were a speaker or a panelist, please come on up. I want to. So keep clapping for them. Give them a hand. Come all the way up. <laughs>